Well, I was thinking, you know, I've been doing this kind of series, little mini-series on relationships, and, and I was going to continue that this morning, but then I thought, you know what? All those women are missing, and you know what? I really want them to hear that, that stuff, so I thought, well, maybe I should do like a message that's more geared towards the men, because you know, there'll just be men here this morning. But then I realized, you know what? There's not going to be just men here, so... I kind of went in between there, and what I did was I went back to our promises, and I want to talk this morning about something that does affect us as men, I think perhaps even more than it affects women, but it's, it's really a, uh, applicable to all of us, because all of us participate in this. It is the promise of destiny. I want to start with a football thing, because of course, you know, men are here, right? Okay? Men, we understand football, right? Well, we think we understand football. <laughs> I love this story. The coach at Auburn University, Shug Jordan, asked his former linebacker, Mike Collin, if he would help his alma mater do some recruiting for the team. And Mike said, sure, coach. What kind of player are you looking for? Coach said, well, Mike, you know there's that fellow. You knock him down, and he just stays down. Mike says, well, we don't want him, right, coach? No, that's right. But then there's that fellow that you knock him down, and he gets up. You knock him down again, and he stays down. Mike said, well, we don't want him either, do we, coach? Coach, no, Mike. But there's a fellow, you knock him down, he gets up. You knock him down, he gets up. You knock him down, he gets up. You knock him down, and he gets up. Mike said, well, that's the guy we want, isn't it, coach? Coach answered, no, Mike. We don't want him either. You see, I want the guy who's knocking everybody down. That's the guy I want. (laughs) Throughout Scripture we find God selecting men and women for his service who haven't been obvious choices. They've been people typically that have been knocked down and got up, but they're also the people that tend to knock things down. Moses stuttered, should have disqualified him, but he still managed to lead the people of Israel to freedom. Jacob was a liar and a scoundrel, but he's responsible for the 12 tribes. Timothy had ulcers, but he wasn't just a leader. He was the pastor of a church and the prodigy of, Saul, of, of Paul. Abraham was just too bloody old, but he still managed to give birth to a nation. Naomi was a widow, but she ended up in the lineage of Jesus. John was, well, rather self-righteous. We're talking John the Baptist. But God still called him the forerunner of the Messiah. Peter, well, Peter was a lot of things. A foot-in-the-mouth kind of guy. Always said the wrong things at the wrong time. Okay? He kind of bragged on himself a little too much. A little full of himself. But Christ built his church on Peter's leadership. Jonah took off and ran from God, tried to hide, tried to get away from his calling, his destiny in Christ, and God kept bringing him back to it, to the point where he had to have a fish swallow him and spit him out on the beach, kind of a gross way to to get where you're supposed to go. But an entire nation, the nation of Nineveh, was saved because of Jonah, even when he didn't want to do it. Miriam was a bigot. And she was a gossip. 
she had all kinds of issues, but God still managed to use her. Thomas, we call him Doubting Thomas, Thomas wouldn't believe unless he was faced with hard facts and evidence to support those facts, but he was still a disciple. Martha, Martha was a worry wart. How many of you struggle with worry? Martha was a worry wart. But you know what? She's recorded in Scripture, and she gets over her good self. We see that in the Scripture if you read it. The first time it happens, Jesus gives her a little instruction. It never happens again. These were not the kind of people that you and I would have expected for God to pick for his purposes. But then the scripture tells us that God does that a lot. In fact, he does it deliberately. In 1 Corinthians, it says, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. God deliberately chooses people that you and I might overlook. If all those people from Scripture that I just mentioned are not enough to prove that point, then all I ask you to do is to look around you right now. Go ahead. Do you see any world changers in the room? I do. I see a whole room full of world changers. Each and every one of you has this thing called a destiny in Christ. Each and every one of you has the potential to be a world changer. Do you know why when you look in the mirror, you don't see a world changer looking back at you? You don't because your eyes are trained to see what our culture deems as valuable. You see, the culture of the New Testament, Old Testament, wouldn't have thought these people that I read names off of, wouldn't have thought that they were very valuable, wouldn't have thought they were very important. In fact, I'm kind of surprised that, that you know, God didn't choose better people. But then I think I understand why he didn't, because they would have gotten the credit rather than God. And the credit didn't belong to them. It belonged to the person who raised them up. And see, we don't see world changers when we look in the mirror because we're looking at what culture says is valuable. We're looking at what our world says is important, significant, and valuable. And God sees differently. When you stepped into the family of God by accepting Jesus into your heart, positionally you moved from the world's culture into kingdom culture. Now, I said positionally because that's how God actually sees it. He picked you up and he moved you from what you were, dead in your sins, and made you alive in Christ. That's how he sees it. He's done this amazing thing in you that the mirror on your wall does not always reflect, and we don't always see. But the truth of Scripture is this, that you are currently seated with Christ in heavenly places. That gives you the potential to change the world around you. The problem then lies with what? What we see, right? The problem lies with our vision. We don't see it. We see the old self in the mirror, and we're pretty sure the old self doesn't have the power to change much of anything. Felt like that this week at all? You know, powerless? not able to make the significant changes in your life or the lives of other people, 
that need to happen? I'm willing to admit that one. That would have looked like me this week. We see that old self in the mirror, and that old self just doesn't look very powerful. In fact, we believe that so strongly that we literally talk ourselves out of our God-ordained destiny every day. We make choices that remove us from the responsibility to pursue the higher calling of God on our lives. Listen, folks, every time, every time that we substitute anything this world offers us for what God is offering, we slam the brakes on in terms of our destiny. If our destiny, as Paul says, is running the race, then it's as if we were adept in shooting ourselves in the foot. If it's the good fight, as Paul says, then we've become adept at tying one arm behind our back in the conflict. But that can change. And that's what I want to address this morning by looking at the lives of two Old Testament kings. If you would turn with me to Acts chapter 13. I know it's a strange place to find two Old Testament kings uh, because I'm going to go back and read some of the, the stories out of the Old Testament about at least one of these kings anyway. But here's where we find out the crux of the issue with these two kings. Acts chapter 13 verse 20 out of the NIV Bible says this, after this, God gave them judges. Now, to give you context for what, what's happening here, uh, Stephen is giving reason for why the Jews should believe in Jesus Christ. He's going back in history, and he's lining everything up for them to lead up to Christ. This is before he gets stoned for what he believes. And he's basically giving testimony. So he's kind of looking back in Scripture and pulling some things out of the life of Israel to lead them to understand what God was doing. This little section, this little passage, is about two different kings. He says, after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made king, David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. <coughs> Two different kings. The first one, Saul. The second one, David. The first one that God puts in the kingship, the very first king over Israel, God has to remove. The second one, God says, this is a man after my own heart. He will do everything that I want him to do. Two different kings, two different ways of looking at life. Let's pray, because I want us to see this clearly. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you this morning that you give us everything that we need to turn the vision in the mirror into the same thing that you see. You give us everything we need to be the world changers you designed and desired for us to become. Father, I know that our, our vision can sometimes get cloudy. So I'm going to ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see very clearly who you want us to be in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. According to the passage we just read, Saul was God's anointed king over Israel until God removed him. Now, the question is, why then did God need to remove him? Um, Saul didn't really seem like all that bad of a person 
to have as a king. Consider the fact that he was handsome, he was athletic, he was tall. Actually, Scripture says he was taller than anybody else in Israel. So he was a big guy. And initially, Saul showed a fair amount of wisdom and humility as a ruler over Israel. He was very popular. Even Samuel, the prophet of God, liked Saul. In fact, after Saul is removed, uh, 1 Samuel 16 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul? since I have rejected him as king over Israel. See, Samuel liked Saul, and and he didn't like the fact that he lost that king. Everybody seemed to like Saul. Everybody was impressed with this man. He was an exceptional person. Everyone, except for God. God had a problem with Saul. God's problem with Saul was that when Saul was faced with tough decisions in his life, when he was faced with hard choices to make, and he knew what God's will was, he knew what God wanted him to do. Saul simply didn't do what God wanted to have done. Uh, Let me give you an example. In 1 Samuel chapter 13, there's a fight, a defense of Israel with Saul as king. This is what it says. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. This was a huge host of people. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilead, Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel the prophet. But Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up a burnt offering before God. Just as he finished making that offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, He would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. What's the point of this? When Saul had to make hard decisions and he was faced with whether to follow God's instructions or to follow an easier course of action, Saul made his choices based on fear, not faith the fear of failure, the fear that his enemies might destroy him, the fear that his own soldiers would abandon him. In fact, Saul seemed to fear everything except God because God had spoken clearly to Saul that he was to wait for Samuel. That's not the only time that Saul disobeyed God. There were other times that necessitated Saul's removal. But here's the point. When things got tough, Saul focused on everything except pleasing God. 
And as a result, God rejected Saul as king over Israel. And God went looking for somebody else who would be a man after his own heart. God went looking for a man after his own heart. Now, what would that look like? Obviously, they weren't going to look like Saul, right? Saul was not the type of man who pleased God. But then the person they found didn't seem to be all that impressive either. David's father, Jesse, didn't even think that he was very impressive himself. That's not too great a a testimony when your own father doesn't think that you're all that impressive. When Samuel comes to town, Jesse had the opportunity to parade his sons before this great prophet, and Jesse didn't even bring David in from the fields with the sheep. David was insignificant. He was kind of the runt of the litter, so to speak, not worth a second thought when it came to impressing a powerful man like Saul or, or like Samuel. And David's older brother, Eliab, wasn't much impressed by him either. In 1 Samuel 17, 28, it tells us that when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard David speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? This is when David comes down to slay Goliath. With whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch this battle. Neither his father nor his older brother considered David all that significant, all that important, all that powerful. And of course, Goliath, well, Goliath wasn't very impressed with David either. In 1 Samuel 17, 42, it informs us that when Goliath looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, he despised him. It's like, you sent a child against me. David apparently was not the first choice of anybody who met him. He wasn't even Samuel's first choice. Samuel was far more impressed with David's older brothers. Scripture says when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And Eliab was, was Samuel's first choice. That's what it says in Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel 16, 6. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Remember, Saul was a really tall guy. And so Eliab was obviously pretty tall too. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Get that? The Lord looks at the heart. God isn't impressed by how handsome or pretty you are. Doesn't matter. He's not impressed by how much money you have. He's not impressed with the accomplishments of your life. He doesn't care about your college degrees or your educational background, your pedigree. But think on this too. If those things don't qualify you for God's destiny on your life, then they also don't hold you back from God's destiny on your life either. It doesn't matter what you look like, how pretty or handsome you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are or are not. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished to this point or not. It doesn't matter how educated or how smart you are. God works with the heart. You don't have to be good-looking. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to be accomplished. And you don't even have to be educated. What what qualifies you to reach your destiny is what God sees in you. 
What does that look like? It looks like your heart. God wants to know what your heart is like. God can use a heart that belongs to him. Second Chronicles 6, 9, 16, 9 says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You see, God is looking into the home of every individual on earth. He's looking into the home and into the life of you, of your neighbors, anyone that is seeking and willing to be committed to his cause, his purposes, his goals, and this world that he created. Stories told of three military recruiters who showed up to address high school seniors that were about to graduate. Each recruiter representing the Army, the Navy, and the Marine Corps was to be able to speak for 15 minutes. The Army and the Navy guys got so carried away that when it came time for the Marine to speak, he had just two minutes left. He walked up and he stood utterly silent for a full 60 seconds, half of his time in silence. And then he just said this, I doubt whether there are two or three of you in this room who could even cut it in the Marine Corps, but I want to see those two or three immediately in the dining hall when we're dismissed. He turned smartly and went and sat down. When he arrived in the dining hall, those students interested in the Marines were a mob. That Marine Corps recruiter was saying, we only want people who will give us their total commitment. I'm convinced that as a people, we want destiny. We want significance. We want to make a difference. All of us really do. So what holds us back? What stops us? God is looking for a people who are totally committed to his cause. But what does it mean then for us to have hearts that are totally committed to him? Now, I gave us a lot of thought, and I came up with three ways that we can examine our hearts to make sure that we're not getting in the way of our own destiny in Christ. First, if we're going to be a people after God's own heart, then our hearts, our lives need to be built around God in the first place. David wrote, sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all of his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done, the miracles and the judgments he has pronounced. A man or woman after God's own heart is one who loves to be in his presence. And to be in his presence is to ascribe worth to him. It is to worship him. Now, last week I talked a little about how hard it can be for me when there are so few people here on a Sunday morning. Guess what? There's even less here this morning than there was last week. Do you know why that's hard for me? It's not hard for me because it, it attacks my significance. That's not what is difficult for me. What's difficult for me is because I know when people aren't here, then they're missing out on one of the most important blessings of the Christian life. And that is to encounter God in worship and in fellowship with his people. It's just that simple. People who have a heart for God want to be with God. They want to be in worship. They want to gather together at the communion table. They want to sing praises to his name. 
to tell of all of his wonderful acts like David wrote here, to glory in who he is for them. A person who has a heart for God will not want to miss church or any other opportunity to meet with God or God's people. They might have to miss now and then, but they won't want to miss. They want to be with God and worship. And because of that, their lives are built around God. A little while ago, Jen and I did a, a wedding for some old friends of ours from Morgan Hill, and that, the mom and dad. And, and this particular daughter, Alexandra, was marrying a young man, David, whose parents were not believers at all. But David was a believer, and he wanted to have God in the center of his relationship with his wife. And we spent, I think, maybe five or six sessions together for about three hours each time because they were from the Bay Area. We crammed our 10 sessions or so into three. Uh, it was awesome to be able to get to know this young man and his heart for God. But you could see the weight of the fact that his parents weren't believers on his shoulders. And so we prayed every time we met for his mom and dad that somehow they would be touched by what happened in the the wedding ceremony, that they would agree, perhaps, to begin going to church at Alex and David's church that they had found because they wanted so much, David wanted so much, for them to enjoy that fellowship with God. I can tell you honestly, I heard from David this last week. His parents not only started coming to the church, he says, now I can't keep them away. Every time the doors are open, no matter what it is, they show up. Why? Because they want to be in the presence of God. That's their heart's desire. Now, those people who are now after God's own heart, it's that important for them. Second, if we're going to be people after God's own heart, we need to build our lives around his word, around the Bible. Last week, I, I challenged you to look into Psalm 23. Not just read it, but to chew it up, to meditate on it. You know, meditation can be likened to a cow chewing its cud. You know what a cow does when he chews its cud? Basically, he ingests the grass, and then he barfs it up and chews it again, ingests it, barfs it up, chews it. That's called chewing the cud, okay? Meditation is kind of like that. You take it in, and then you mull it over, okay? You keep bringing it back into your thoughts, mulling it over and mulling it over until you get every last drop of nutrient out of it, which is exactly what the cow does. If you didn't get a chance to do that, Psalm 23 this week, folks. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Read that. Go over that. Take everything out of that you can possibly get out of that this week. David wrote that the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Ba David had 
a love affair with the Word of God, with what God had spoken to people. David was almost fanatical about making God's Word part of his life. He meditated upon God's Word day and night. He wrote songs that sang praises to God's Word. Whenever he needed counsel, the first place he he went to was the law of God for advice. Now, if we're going to be people after God's own heart, the Bible has to be a passion in our lives because you will not understand God's will for your life if you don't integrate his word into your heart. That's why David wrote, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path in Psalm 119. Listen, if you want to see what God sees when you look in the mirror, you're going to have to get acquainted with what he wrote about his own heart. You're going to have to know who he is. You see, one of the problems with looking in the mirror and not seeing what we should see is that we don't know his heart. We don't realize just how good he is. We don't think about how he sees us. Because if we did, we would see differently. If we did, the reflection would be different. Last thing. If you and I are going to be people after his heart, we need to build our lives around God's people as well. We can't forsake the fellowship of one another and expect to understand all the blessings that God has for us. An expert in the law once tried to trap Jesus with the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like that. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. If I'm going to love the Lord with all of my heart, then I need to learn how to love others as well. I need to learn how to love others the same way God loves them. David understood this. That's why when he was urged to kill Saul to save his own life, he said, no. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Saul had gone off into a cave that David was actually hiding from Saul inside the cave. Saul didn't know David was there. He went in the cave to take a leak. While he was doing his business, in the blackness of the cave, David snuck up and cut a piece of his robe off. After Saul left the cave, he came out and he showed Saul the piece of his robe. I could have had your life, but I will not take the life of God's anointed. Instead, David laid prostrate before Saul, basically inviting Saul to kill him. Of course, Saul didn't do that, and the reason he didn't do that was because he would have lost face. His life was just spared by somebody, and it would have been, uh, well, to say the least, bad publicity for him as a king to take David's life at that point. But here's the question I have for you. See, David saw Saul as God's anointed. Who is the Lord's anointed? You see, if I see clearly through God's eyes, then I have to look over here and say, you know what, that man sitting there, Bill, that's God's anointed. 
Cherokee is God's anointed. Johnny is God's anointed. Every believer here, folks, is God's anointed. Every Christian here is God's anointed. If I want to be a man and woman after God's own heart, then I need to be careful how I treat the Lord's anointed. I don't want to talk behind their backs. I don't want to be mean to them. I don't want to even want to look at them with something adverse in my heart because God takes it personally when one of his anointed is attacked or misused. David is proof of that with Saul. Even though Saul was doing something he shouldn't have been doing, David still saw him as anointed. Now, bear in mind that Saul was, was not admirable. He disobeyed God in, in such a way that he literally lost God's kingdom. He lost his kingship anyway. But David still refused to touch him or misuse him. Saul was the Lord's anointed. So how many of you here, if someone else looked hard enough into your life, would have something that could cause or be used to embarrass you? Yeah. Something to shame you? We're not all that much different than Saul, are we? But God will not tolerate us being used and abused. I think David made that really clear. His anointed are protected by him. Now, I've seen churches where Christians have failed to understand that concept. They'll sit in their pews and say things like, did you know what so-and-so did? Don't look back at them right now because, well, they'll know we're talking about them. God won't tolerate that kind of crap. I know, that's not really good grammar, but that's what it is. I should say skubalan because that's the Greek word for it. That is not the behavior of a man after God's own heart or a woman after God's own heart. One other thing, and this is just kind of a sideline in that because I know it happens and I cringe when I hear it. Using ministry to gossip about other people is not an option. We can't even use prayer or prayer requests to disclose someone else's dirty laundry. Do you remember Jesus' command to us, if a brother offends us, go to them, try to resolve the problem? If you've offended a brother, you go to them, you try to solve the problem. Why should we do that? Because that is what a man or woman who is after the heart of God and committed to God does. We're expected to build each other up, not tear each other down. We're expected to love one another fervently from the heart. The same heart, by the way, that qualifies us to be people after God's own heart. Because when we're sold out to God, in our lives, then we're totally committed to him in our hearts, and we realize that this is what pleases God. So a man or a woman is totally committed to God. In their heart is someone who is totally sold out for God. They're committed. They've committed themselves to building their relationship with God. They're committed to God's word. They're committed to God's people. All of that is kind of lumped into a term that we call consecrated before God. Consecrated means committed before God, totally abandoned before God to his purposes. A Christian woman once ran across 
the word consecrated in one of her studies, and it kind of confused her. She wasn't really sure what that word meant. So she went to her pastor and she asked, what does this consecration thing mean? His pastor reached over and picked up a blank sheet of paper and he handed it to her. And then he said, consecration is when you sign your name at the bottom of a blank sheet of paper and you let God fill in all the rest. Being a man or a woman after God's own heart is just such an arrangement. It's being totally committed, signing our name on the bottom line and letting God write the contract after the fact as he reveals your destiny to you. So what is it going to be? We're either a people after God's own heart or we're not. We're either a people that pursue his destiny for our lives or we don't. I think it's time. Actually, it's probably past time. But time just the same to decide who we're going to be. We can be like Saul. Saul was a good man. He did the right thing until the right thing seemed a little too hard because basically being a man after God's own heart comes down to our choices, folks. What choices will we make? Or we can be a person after God's own heart like David and make the choices that bring about our destiny in Christ. Now, David wasn't perfect. We know from Scripture that he was not. But in his devotion to God, he excelled the passion that he had for the pursuit of his relationship with God was how God looked at his heart. And that's what God is looking for us to do as well. We won't be perfect in it. We'll get things wrong. I guarantee you, I get things wrong pretty much every day, even on Sunday. But pursuing him, is what he's called us to do. That is our destiny in Christ, to pursue Jesus until we become like him. That is a choice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our choices. It can be really easy for us to walk out of this place this morning, Father God, and just go back to life as normal. We did our time in church. We did our thing, the religious thing. We showed up. That was a good choice. But now the real choices begin. What will the rest of the day look like? What will Monday morning look like for us? What choices will we make? What things will we pursue? Father, I want to pray for us right now that the only thing we're allowed to pursue, that the hound who is the Holy Spirit will not allow us to go a different direction, will be Jesus this week. That we will pursue that relationship with you to worship you, to spend time with you, to pursue your word and to pursue one another because we are Jesus' body, his presence on this planet. So, Father, I pray for our choices. Every choice we make defines our destiny for us. And you've given us the ability to make those choices. In fact, by your sovereignty, you decided it was important for us to make those choices. So, Father, I pray for us as a people that that would happen. And I declare over us this morning, as a people, 
that your destiny will happen. Just like Philippians says, you will complete the good work that you have begun in us. And I trust in that, Father God. Please don't let us get in the way and trip ourselves up. We want to reach our destiny. And we want to do so in a way that changes the world around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Worship team, would you come back up, please?